Okay, it's November 6th. Uh, we're discussing uh, Hebrews, Epistle to the Hebrews, Lesson 4. Let's open in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you for uh, all of the time that we were uh, given this week. Lord, we know that everything comes from your hands, and we know that uh, it is to be used wisely. I thank you for those who uh, spent their time wisely this week, Father. I thank you also that uh, um, you've given us your word as a place that we can spend our time, and that you've given us one another as a place that, you can, that we can spend our time and our energies in uh, showing love. Father, I pray that you might be with us this evening as we open your word, that we might show our love for one another and our love for you and how we deal rightly with it, we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. And shall we say the blessing? You're welcome to join along. Uh, blessing before uh, uh, the Torah reading. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach, Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Leolam Ba'id, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam, Asher Bachabanu Mikohamim, Venatan Lanu Et Torato, Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah. Amen. Bless Adonai, who is blessed. Blessed is Adonai, who is blessed forever. Blessed art thou, Adonai our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed art thou, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. Got a couple of scriptures up here for us. Nevertheless, this is uh, Yeshua speaking. Or excuse me, this is speaking of Yeshua. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, speaking of Yeshua, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Yeshua cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. That's John 12, 42-45. That's fairly late in his ministry. This is Yeshua speaking. These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. John 15, uh, 1 through 2, which is even later in it. It was prophetic, which is what we're looking at today. Uh, we're almost ready to begin. Uh, next week we will get into uh, the actual uh, discussion of the text of the book of Hebrews. Uh, we spent four weeks getting ready. Uh, it will be good. Actually, you did, you did some Hebrews work, but uh, we'll get into the text next week. Let me just tell you, next week's homework uh, may seem a little bit confusing. Just take your time step by step. Uh, there's a little bit of historical background, but then step by step, going through the first two chapters, in the step by step, you will have marked up your page quite a bit. Uh, don't, don't be discouraged by that. It, it is meant to prove a point, and the point is uh, very, very much that this book is highly technical, cannot simply be read as if it's a novel, because it's not. Acts. Here's what we've learned so far, hopefully. That the believers, the likely recipients, likely recipients uh, to the Hebrews, they remained in the temple worship system until at least 58, which is when Paul is arrested. Uh, participating in both the prayers and the sacrifices. We'll see the sacrifices today. We'll see how that played a role. They remain an integral part of Judaism, as, and we use that term uh, in parentheses because that is anachronistic. There was no such thing as what we would call Judaism. However, looking back, we would say that was Judaism. 
Uh, they remained an integral, part, uh, an integral sect of Judaism and were well regarded by the people and considered pious. Those who were, in fact, pious within nominal uh, Judaism uh, would have considered the way, the believers, as pious uh, members. Uh, they continued in the synagogue system as well. This is separate from the temple system. We'll, uh, sometime we'll, we'll look into the differences between the temple and the synagogue. Uh, they, relate, they continued in the synagogue system meeting daily and treating the seventh day as the Sabbath. They went through a cultural, however not a theological, shift in order to include Gentiles. Acts 10 and 11 details this cultural shift. At first they considered a theological shift, but it, being, it, being, it, it was made clear by God, specifically to Peter in his vision. And then in discussing it with the council in Jerusalem, it became clear that it was not a theological shift, but merely a cultural shift. That was a difficult thing for them to consider. And then we also saw that uh, there was a primary opposition to them came from different quarters for different reasons. The Sadducees were opposed to the resurrection first and foremost. They did not, and in fact, in discussions, the, Sad, the, the Sadducees considered they considered the believers the Pharisees. They were considered Pharisees. Uh, they were considered Pharisees who believed in Yeshua, and so they were opposed to them on the grounds of both the resurrection and the resurrection of the dead in general, and Yeshua. The Pharisees, some because they were considered part of the same group by, by some. Some opposed them because of Yeshua. Okay? And, which is what we saw in, in John chapter 12. Yeshua actually said this. They were afraid of some of the Pharisees. But, uh, but many of the Pharisees did believe. But many of the Pharisees did believe. We would, we would have to say it was, a, it, was a, it was a significant minority of the Pharisees believed. Um, however, here's the big one. Both of them were opposed to the way the followers of Yeshua because of Gentile inclusion and this is the big one this is where the line was drawn that made all the difference in the world now what we've discovered so far in our book of Acts when we get to chapter 10 and 11 we're talking uh, maybe up to a dozen years after the resurrection of Yeshua so we're talking about you know a significant period of time as most would have it as most theologies would explain it the break took place somewhere around the year 30 immediately after the resurrection um, and that a new religion was born or the true religion as it is sold um, when in fact at the very least at the very earliest it would not be until um, around 40 or even 45 that this had taken place uh, so obviously there's, this is the breaking point it's not Yeshua alone Yeshua is the stumbling stone no question about it and as time goes on he becomes the most definitive and the most uh, splintering of characters and reasons but early on it is in fact the Gentiles is the main break between what we would call today the church and the synagogue was it, just to be specific was it Gentile inclusion or the means by which Gentiles well, I would say that it's 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 Gentile. It's, I would say it's Gentile inclusion because we're going to talk about it here in a little bit. But being becoming a proselyte removed you from the category of being a Gentile. Technically, it didn't. Practically, that's not true. As we're going to see, it is a stigma that remains to this day. You can ask the average yeshiva student: was was uh, was Rabbi Akiva native born or? Gentile, and they will say Rabbi Akiva was a Gentile. 
he was a proselyte to Judaism. Actually, it was his father was a proselyte to Judaism. Well, if in fact we were practically adhering to the standard, that is, once a man comes up out of a mikvah, he's an Israelite indeed, then if we were in fact saying that, that ritual conversion to Judaism makes you a true Jew, uh, as that's what they say, then one would forget that Rabbi Akiva has this background. And yet we don't. I think the interesting thing about the people of Gentile inclusion, though, isn't so much that there's some sort of racism or prejudice as much as it's a real, almost a shattering in some ways of cultural and even some theological points. The theological basis for a lot of it was that all Israel is saved. There is an understanding that the only people who get blessed by God is the people of Israel. To include Gentiles immediately redefines well, oh, it's the biggest theological leap in their minds. Now, understand when 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 Peter hears this, he begins to he begins obviously to 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 begin to make the distinction between the commands of God and the authority of men. Not authority that's invalid. Yeshua said the Pharisees have valid authority, but it's a difference between the commands of God and the authority of men. He begins to make this distinction. Right? Well, if you never get to the point of making that distinction, you're gonna, this is a huge theological problem. It's a huge theological problem because all Israel saved and only Israel saved. We're going to talk a little bit about what it is to be saved, but you're right. But it's like, in, I think it's out of Peter or James, one of the passages I think we look at this week when they talk about the fact that he says, we, by faith, have been included exactly. so are they and that's precisely part of the problem there too for the theological point because now all of a sudden being Jewish or a good Jew or whatever doesn't just leave you in a group there's some, some that ah not only are you including people now within the, within the community you're excluding people that are already within the community you see it's a huge feel, it's a it's actually it's almost too much sure. All right, this, this is our chart from last week that compare the sex after Acts 10 and Acts 11. The only thing that changes on the chart is, guess what? The way is the single sex that says, oh, by the way, you can be a part of the community, the commonwealth of Israel, without be going through ritual conversion. That's a big deal. That's huge. They're the only ones. No one else takes this. No one else ever arrives at this position. This is the split. That's where the split happens. All right, let's look at Acts 15, 1 through 11, which is what we're talking about right now. So let's just go there. I'm going to read just a few uh, key, key verses from this passage, and then we'll uh, talk about what, what we did in our notes. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. Who are the brethren? Sorry, there was a lot of people Okay. And taught the brethren. Who are the brethren? Are they believers, unbelievers? Who are they? Believers. Believers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others ought to, of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Well, I thought, why would you even have to ask the question? Why is it no one reads this and go, this is so obvious, why is anybody even asking the question? Maybe we don't understand what the question is. 
So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the the conversions of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Let me go on to discuss this uh, just before we get any further, though. What, again, the questions asked. No one asks why. Are, why are they even asking these questions? How is it that we are saved by grace through faith? How can these people who have actually become believers have this position? How can they be so confused about how one is saved? In fact, one might offer that if they're this confused, they're not saved themselves. They obviously don't understand. Well, that's how the church really teaches this, right? <laughs> but no, these are believers. These guys in 15.1 that come up to them and say, you know, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, 15.1 does mean they not be believers. Later on, the Pharisees... Pharisees are believers. First of, all, first of all, I want to caution people. When you read this passage, do not, collect it. Do, do not connect it to Galatians. This this actually probably this probably actually is precedes the event in Galatians. Precedes Galatians. Although I think this, this these are not the same people in chapter two. But these are not the same people. Okay, Paul is when it talks about these Pharisees who rose up and say these are not the people no. that Paul says he wishes they would go ahead and emasculate themselves. But the Judeans are in verse one, maybe. <laughs> Possible to yeah, possible the Judeans are in first one of R. However, that would leave, need to leave a significant time for Paul to understand the problem, write a letter to the Galatians, and then go down to Jerusalem. So there, we kind of have them out of sequence. Well, the whole thing of Galatians happens after. Yeah. after exactly, exactly. It's after. See, and the problem is when people read it, they usually put Galatians first and then have this. And that was the dispute was not resolved. But if you read Galatians, the dispute has been resolved. In fact, after, I mean... And yet it still requires additional teaching. To be fair to the Pharisees here in verse 5, Paul rips Peter for pretty much the same thing in Galatians because Peter stops eating with the Gentiles. That's right. Now the apostles and the elders came together, verse 6, to consider the matter. And when they had heard much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know what a, what, that a good while ago God chose among us that my, by my mouth the Gentiles, that God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledging, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. What's the significance of giving them the Holy Spirit? There's no question that they were saved. There's no question. They have been added into the community of God, the family of God, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Key word there, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which were which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Messiah, excuse me, the Lord uh, Yeshua Messiah, it's hard to say it that way, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitudes kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after that they came silent. James answered saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Uh, Simon has declared, speaking of Peter, how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take them out of 
take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. After this, I will, re- I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Stop for there. For now here. That, so, the words circumcised and saved, either they mean something different, or we're going to have some issues as we go further into this. Let's look at it. What would it mean to somebody living in, a, in, in around 40, though? What, what kind of guy? A Jew. What kind of Jew? An observant Jew. There's only one kind of Jew. But what do you mean an observant Jew? An observant Jew is a follower of the way or not? Not a follower of the way. He doesn't believe in Yeshua. Well, the circumcision to him is an act of obedience that's done to his children, to his, to his sons at the age of eight. And but we're talking about adu- we're talking about adults, so well, circumcision would be for only for a proselyte because a Jew would have already been circumcised. Bingo. And saved. What do you mean saved? Good. All Jews are saved. What are you talking about? What's the discussion? Yeah. That's I mean, the same thing with Nicodemus. Yeah, it's like what are you talking about? Again, I, I was born a Jew. I, I I don't have to be born again. That's right. That's right. To a Jew, this is. Now let's say a, 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 a now let's say a believing Jew. What was a believe, What would a believing Jew hear? We might say saved. And he goes, well, what, in what way are you talking about? Because all Israel will be saved, you know, but it may not happen as like we think it's going to happen, right? I, I think that, um, and that's a, a question, Joshua here. But I think the Pharisees in five fifteen five are the same type of guys as fifteen one. They are the same ilk. They're confused, and they're saying, well, Gentiles in? Cool. Or, they got to go through this door, and that door is circumcision, because they got to become one of us. They're glad. Don't misunderstand. They're glad. This is something that, as Yeshua talks about in Matthew chapter 23, this is something that Pharisees work very hard at. They are, they're, they're the missionaries, if you will. They, they want people to come into, into Judaism. So they're not upset about this. They're just saying, hey, look, they're procedures. You can't just let people in here. <laughs> Right? There are multiple reasons for that, too. Um, in, the, in the passage that says, Keep the commands of Moses, part of the issue with the Gentiles dealt with the fact of keeping purity for the Jews. There was a fear, so much so that a lot of Jews who lived outside of Israel were vegetarians, for fear of accidentally eating meat on the island, accidentally eating meat that was contaminated somehow, eating with a Gentile maybe who had been around the day. Or, you know, there's so many different possibilities. Because Gentiles didn't keep Torah, they might be unclean and make you unclean by accident, and then gas, you might wander to the temple unclean, not knowing it. And exactly. And everything else. Exactly. Okay, first, in, in, in verse 1, it's the... It's the uh, it, when it says the law of Moses, it's not it's not namas. It's not it's not the law of Moses. Verse five, it is keep the law of Moses. Acts fifteen ten. What's the yoke? What's the yoke? Is it possible? See, everybody reads this and goes, oh, that's obvious. Well, the law is just a. I mean, it's like it's like a stranglehold. Okay, so which part of the law is a stranglehold on you? Which part of the law? By the way, the yoke. Torah is a yoke. No question. The law is a yoke. But a yoke is something that's good, is it not? We, when we talk about what's a yoke, you know, uh, we talk about, you know, taking on the yoke of the master is what? It's easy and light, is it not? Take my yoke upon you. So a yoke's not bad, but this is a yoke that's bad. Oh, this is a hard yoke. What, what's a hard yoke? 
think the key is to read Luke at the beginning of verse 10. It says, therefore, why tempt God? In other words, what they're trying to do is an opposition ah, to something that God has said. Very good. And what is it that he said? That's exactly what Peter's doing. What is Peter saying? God talked about this, and now you guys are messing with it again. What did he talk about? What did he tell them? Do not say anything that he has made clean is unclean or common. What has he made clean? Those who have been given the Holy Spirit, right? Whether Jew or Gentile, they have been purified. So what's this yoke? How could, how could the Torah... What part of the Torah is a yoke? Not lying? Is that a yoke? Is that a, what part is, is, a, is a burden? Not lying? Is that a burden? Is that, is that the burden part? Well, no. Our... our, our our friends uh, like John MacArthur and others would say, no, 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 that's not a burden at all. Lying is easy. Or not lying is easy, rather. Once we, once we come to faith, not lying is easy. It's natural, as it were. Supernatural. How about murder? Is that, is that a yoke? Is that a burden? Well, no, no, no. Once we come to faith, not murdering is not a burden at all. That's easy. Well, just be very clear. What, what's the burden part? Let's, let's really understand what the burden part is. Take 613 start categorizing. Tell me the burden part. Where does it become a burden? Well, if you read John, 1 John 5, you'll have a difficult time having anything on the, in column B. I agree. Keeping the Sabbath, that's a burden. And it says, and yet it says, Sabbath was made for man. So, that can't be a burden. It wasn't ever intended to be a burden. It wasn't a burden for God. It wasn't a burden for Israel. Why would it be a burden for anyone? Of course, if you put a lot of extra rules on it, it can be a real thing. Possibly, yeah. Uh, how about, how about uh, I know those festivals. Those are, you know, partying, come on. That's a burden. <laughs> okay, fasting for a whole day at Yom Kippur. That's a burden, yeah. You, yeah, you, that was a tough one. <laughs> now, being facetious, obviously none of it's a burden. And in fact, First John, First John tells us, First John five twenty uh, two through three tells us clearly that it's not a burden. And in fact, Romans Romans has a commentary on Deuteronomy thirty. Romans ten four through nine has Paul comments on on Deuteronomy thirty and tells us that in fact the very essence of the Torah is Yeshua, and He is not a burden. Is he too high? Is he too far away? Is he too is he is he too distant? No, he's he's here. And the command is here and in your mouth. And what is that command? It's the command of faith. Ah, see, Paul in, Deut- in Romans chapter ten makes the connection. The commands operated within the realm of faith are not a burden at all. Thank you. I'm saying the word burden. It is actually used in another part in the Epiphone Scripture in reference to the Pharisees of all people. Ah. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, Yeshua, speaking of the Pharisees, says, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be born, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Um, clearly, Yeshua is not talking about keeping Torah in his case because he later commends the Pharisees for doing so much as hiding their herbs and spices. So it's not it's that it's more a reference to the additional commands and things they were adding, and in the case of the acts, it is additional commands being added to gain entrance into the group. It was pretty much setting a bar 
infinitely higher than what God had required, saying until you do this, you can't be in. Not infinitely higher, but at least man's determination of what it is to be in. One of the problems with this whole issue is that it becomes very clear when you begin to make the two columns. What's, what's acceptable, what's a burden, what isn't a burden? In most Christian theologies, you begin to derive a list that's on the burden side, which is clearly and succinctly Jewish identity which becomes very obvious after a while that what we're really talking about is we're talking about, I'm talking about dispensationalists what we're talking about is we're just basically talking about pure and simple raw anti-Semitism maybe not theirs but someone who decided to come up with a list and it's un- and I'm not trying to move the line of anti-Semitism some further but I would simply say that maybe they drew the line a little bit too close to scripture the line should have been drawn outside Scripture. I would even say it should be drawn far outside Scripture, but at least you could say, hey, look, all that's Scripture, that's, that's valid. Okay, we won't, we won't look into the traditions or anything like that. Those may be a burden or whatever else. I would offer that even some of those are not a burden, and that, that traditions actually offer us a relief, as it were, by giving us uh, clear and, and distinguishable guidelines whereby we can live in communities. But having said that... I'm honored. Time honored, yes. Uh, not to not to give them that same that same elevation of scripture, but at least one could say, "Hey, look, draw the line after scripture closes." But they didn't. They drew the line three quarters of the way through their Bibles. Acts fifteen eleven. Here's the unique insight. But Peter, just like uh, Josh was talking about, Peter turns the argument on its head because he said, But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Yeshua Messiah, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Now the Pharisee, believing Pharisee, said, Okay, the Gentiles, they, they have to be turned into Jews to be saved. And Peter turns around and says, We Jews have to be turned into Jews. If that's true, then we Jews have to be turned into Jews, as it were, to be saved. Actually, he doesn't say it in that way. What he's saying is, he's saying, look, there's a group within us that are and aren't. We have, a, we have this community of Israel that we're all residing within that are blessed, as it were, that Peter's speaking about. Okay, we're all blessed. Some of us will be spiritually blessed in addition to being physically blessed. But those of us who are spiritually blessed with and saved eternally, if that's what you want to use, which is a new concept here. I mean, they're basically, all Israel is going to be saved, but that's quite into the future. They're, all Israel is saved now in their minds. Or maybe you get saved off and, off and on. It's a, it's a temporal thing, you know. I'm not talking about eternal salvation. We always think of it eternal salvation, and it's not, it's not fair to do that, because Scripture doesn't. We can be saved from uh, an accident, you know, in an accident. You live through an accident, you were saved. Although it's be fair, you can't have a dichotomy of means. For example, yeah. Habakkuk, when it says righteous shall live by faith, um, it says the salvation there is actually partly in reference to the coming of the Babylon. Right. But, but it also applies it to a more spiritual content later. Following, following uh, disengagement, if you listen to the interviews or whatever else, uh, in, in when, when they were being deported from Gaza, you constantly, if you hear the if you hear the Hebrew, the people speaking Hebrew in the background, they're constantly using the word Yeshua, Yeshua, Yeshua. And they said, because we're looking for salvation. I mean, this is what we're looking for. We want salvation. Well, well, they're not talking about, they weren't looking for Messiah. I mean, they are looking for Messiah, but not Messiah Yeshua. Not yet. 
what they're speaking of is we're looking for this situation we in, we're in to be resolved supernaturally. That was their, that's what salvation means. That's what Yeshua means. A supernatural resolution for the situation that I'm in. Uh, we, rightfully, when we read uh, Acts 15, are seeing this. We're talking about eternal salvation or inclusion into the community. It's, it has, 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 a, has a start. My eternal salvation has a start. I'm a part of a community, this side, this side of the divide, right? Um, and, that's, and that's what we're, we're seeing. Uh, but it does have multiple layers, uh, so it's not as easily defined. But here he's saying, look, we are in this inside group. This is the group that is, quote, saved. How did we get here? By faith. Not because we were born here. Wow, that's, that's like, this is radical. This is totally radical thinking. And guess what? Gentiles got in here too by not coming through, uh, by being born into it. They got in the same way we did. Wow, that's, that's a shock too. Everybody's in this, in this group together merely, but everybody understand that you understood they were, they were in the community by grace. God, you know, it's in the prayers, you know. You know, the Elaine prayer talks about, thank you for not making me a Gentile. <laughs> right? Why? Because they understand, you know, to be in, in the community of faith is, in fact, or in the community of Israel is, in fact, an act of God's grace and grace alone. So they didn't have a problem with salvation by grace. What they didn't understand is, but you couldn't be born into it. Clearly, there were some that understood this before this. Day. They did. They did. So it's not a matter of ethnicity. Now, to understand ethnicity, and this is, this is a hard thing for me to grasp at first, too, but when one, when one is a proselyte to Judaism, both in the first century and today, one actually goes through not a religious conversion, but an ethnic conversion that results in a religious affiliation. Judaism's conversion process is, in fact, the process of making you physically a Jew which then results in maybe, yes, maybe no, maybe you'll be religiously a Jew. There are Hindu Jews who are considered totally Jewish. But there's no Christian Jews that are considered totally Jewish because that's the giving up of your ethnicity for another religion. I mean, it's confusing, but that's exactly the way to look at it. Uh, this, is ex- this, this comes from Bavli uh, uh, Yevamot uh, uh, 47A3B. Our rabbis taught, if at the present time a man desires to become a proselyte, he is to be addressed as follows. What reason have you for desiring to become a proselyte? Do you not know that Israel at the present time, a perse- Israel at the present time are persecuted and oppressed, despised, harassed, and overcome with afflictions? If he replies, I know, and I am yet unworthy. He is accepted forthwith and given instruction in some of the minor and some of the major commandments. Keep this in mind as we read the rest of Acts here. He is not, however, to be persuaded or dissuaded too much. If he accepted, if he, accepted he is circumcised forthwith. As soon as he is healed, arrangements are made for his immediate ablution, uh, immersion. Uh, then when two learned men must stand by his side and acquaint him with some of the minor commandments and some of the major ones. When he comes up after his ablution, he is deemed to be an Israelite in all respects. It was taught by uh, Rabbi Hananiah, son of uh, Shimon ben Gamliel. This is uh, Gamliel's uh, son. Uh, would have been about this time. 
in, in, uh, in history. Why are proselytes at the present time oppressed and, and visited with afflictions? Because they have not observed the seven Noachide commandments. Keep this in mind as we read this next passage. Uh, Rabbi Yossi said, One who has become a proselyte is like a, newborn chi- a newly born child. To be born again. Uh, why, are they proselyte? why are the proselytes oppressed? Because they are not so well acquainted with the details of the commandments as the Israelites. Abba Hanan said, in the name of Rabbi Eliezer, because they do not do it out of love, but out of fear. Others said, because they delayed their entry under the wings of the Shekinah. And that's from Bavli 48, uh, Yevamot 48, A and B. Um, let's, read, let's read about what's, what we're going to see here in the rest of Acts. 15 through 20. Uh, 15, 20 through uh, 29. Verse 20, this is kind of like, this is, the, this is their arrangement. Therefore, start in verse, uh, verse 19. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that what we write to them, that they abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from things, and from blood. For Moses has throughout many generations those who preached him in every synagogue, being read in the synagogue, synagogues every Sabbath. Now, most, there's a couple different uh, views of this passage, these four things, these four stipulations. Abstain from pollution of, uh, of idols, meat, etc. Abstain from fornication, abstain from things strangled, abstain from blood. One is that, well, these are the, these are the seven Noahide laws distilled down into four, just like we read here. And it becomes very clear that actually is not true. There's not seven, there's four. That's the view of some in the Messianic community that say that Torah is only for Jews and not for Gentiles. Major problem with that that I saw this week when I was reading through it. Um, Because later on, James does say we only told them to do these four things. But then you start thinking, wait a minute, fornication is not a very Jewish thing, which means if it's only these four they're told to do, that they can still commit murder. They can still lie. They can still steal things. Why would he tell them don't lie? I mean, that's like a... Well, you know, here's... I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you the explanation. The explanation is, well, these are the things that are unique in, in fellowship agreements. These are the things that are unique. All, even the Greeks knew lying was wrong. Well, how'd they know lying was wrong? And actually, that's not true. It's not culturally wrong to lie in many cultures. And they're not just speaking to Greeks. They're speaking to others. So it's not... Cult- is murder always wrong? Well, it depends on what you define as murder. So we're not talking about only cultural things that all cultures recognize, universal morality, whatever else, as, 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 as our friend uh, uh, John MacArthur would say. It's a universal morality. That's the moral code. That remains constant. That's in effect. The problem with that is there's universal morality that's not being addressed uh, because there are cultural issues along with it. Uh, I can tell you, if you've been in any other culture other than American culture, you can realize right away that different cultures see different things that we consider to be universally moral and biblically moral, they have no problem with. And it's not only because they've been they've desensitized, they've never had a problem with it. I mean, there's some very interesting commands because things strangled and blood is definitely a very, very Torah-considered command. This is not, I mean, he leaves out kosher, true. He doesn't tell him to eat, well, he doesn't tell him not to eat kosher. What's, but why? Blood and strangle is very much the same concept. I mean, it's not, don't eat certain animals, but it's still, I mean... Christians, as it were, from the third and fourth centuries, wouldn't have thought of things strangled in blood as being commanded. You know, Jesus would have enforced. 
So that's definitely not like, he didn't just say all the Jewish stuff you have to do, because blood and strangled is definitely still, I think, in the category, if you want to call it that. The problem, is, the problem is, as believers, we have been raised under theologies that have, in fact, taken the position that uh, they don't have to teach the differentiation between what is clean and unclean. Which is actually, that's the, that is the task that God has given those who are in the position of being between him and the people. So leaders must teach the difference between clean and unclean. They don't because they don't think it applies. Well, guess what? Their own theologies then have forgotten what it all means. They don't know. They don't understand. They have no clue that they're, unless they're trained, and they certainly forget it because it doesn't apply, there are varying degrees in clean and unclean. There's significant degrees. There's contagious unclean. And what we're reading about here is we're actually reading about contagious unclean. Where I could touch you, and you could touch someone else. And the third or fourth person down the road, if they go to the temple, they are unclean in the temple. These are also very worship-oriented commands. Um, in the Greek system, I, I, I work out for things to idols strangled blood fornication is all part of the Greek Gentile worship structure um, and so part of this is simply to clarify hey look when you come to the synagogue don't you know I know that actually not all yeah not all of these are contagious are, are contagious and, and then the fornication what you do in your Greek temples let's avoid that now and another important thing also in connection with what we talked about earlier when I mentioned the fact that a part of the problem is the Gentiles might contaminate the Jews or uncleanness well, strangled blood, offered idols, are definitely some items that you could hide, as it were, if you were spending time with someone. And like, mm-hmm. if I went to a Gentile, if a Jew went to a Gentile's house, the Gentile might offer them something that offered the idols, and the Jew would never know. Um, same thing in some ways with being strangled. And, well, blood would be harder, it still be possible, because those would be considered the, the Jewish requirements for how you empty blood. So these three things are saying, if you do these three things, then Jews can interact with you and not have any fear that you're going to accidentally contaminate them. I mean, if they put pork in front of you, the Jews are going to go, can't eat that. But if they put a thing off of the aisle before you, you may not know any better. And Very good. Be Excellent. Excellent. And, and that's exactly correct. And, and these are the issues whereby we need to erase the possibility of suspicion between brothers. How are we ever going to have Gentiles? Let me ask you this. If you were sitting in a congregation and somebody, and somebody got saved, radically saved, come from an awful background, what would be the minimum things you'd want to make sure they understood when they came into your group? What would, be, what would they be? Well, they need to get involved in ministry. Well, not, no, 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 no. Answer yourself. <laughs> not facetiously. Well, actually, maybe facetiously. I don't know. Okay, why? Well, maybe make a public profession sort of thing. Now you're teasing me again. I wrote down, don't drink, don't smoke, don't go to bars, avoid pornography, and be at the church building as often as you can. All, all which of may be fine. Understand, don't misunderstand. See, what you exclude is an interesting thing. What you include, what you exclude. Understand that if you go through your list that you just went through, there are things in there that actually that God has actually forbidden, and there are other things that He hasn't forbidden. And what we're dealing with is we're dealing with a mixture of culture versus command. Not, not, not necessarily the culture doesn't have to be dealt with. The point is, though, how are you going to deal with the community? And this is, this is their issue. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to make it a biblical command. 
We're going to take the commands that are most important for fellowship, and then you're going to learn the rest. One thing that I, I, I challenge anyone that brings Acts 15 up, if they bring Acts 15 up to me with regard to Torah submissiveness, my challenge to them is, so tell me, do you eat your steak bloody or not? Are you, do you care about that? Well, you're, clearly you're saying it's this side of the book of, of Malachi chapter 4. You know, It's this side, so obviously you're not holding to that any longer. Do you feel like you're above that command as well? I mean, any other things there, you know. Pollution from idols. Do you have idols in your house? Well, no. I mean, we have decorations. No, I'm talking about real idols, you know. No, they're decorations. I mean, in Africa, you know, people have statues, you know, little thing to buy at the, at the, at the market or whatever else, you know. Well, it doesn't mean anything to me. Well, then why do you have it in your house? I think in the day, um, with respect to things that you would tell them immediately, would have to do with stuff that's going to hurt someone else, um, or things that are just going to really create a very bad witness, um, and so things like fornication. In modern times, we might include things like foul language or dirty jokes, because it's going to mess with, it's going to hurt and injure the There's nothing wrong, that's right, there's nothing wrong with, behind these that's right. But the primary focus to think behind these is fellowship. Exactly, exactly. But do you understand the difference? People read this list and go, that's the biblical list, and they don't follow it themselves. That's the biblical list. He separated what really mattered from the Torah, and that's the biblical list. What I'm saying is this is, not a, this is a biblical list, but it's the cultural conditions. He's saying these are the things that are necessary for fellowship with us. Once we get together, and here's the, here's the answer. It's found actually in the next verse. Verse 21. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. That's usually where people stop as a verse before. Well, this verse, what it's saying is, we're saying, listen, you come here on, we get together. Because we can get together, because we can have fellowship, you're going to learn the rest of it. It's the starting place. That's the point. This is the starting place. This is how we can have fellowship with one another, dealing with biblical issues, having cultural consideration, knowing you come from a culture that does not understand the significance of these things. You deal with these, then we can get together. We can have fellowship with one another. And we will all learn. What are we going to learn? See, if you go back to verse, verse, uh, was it verse 1? And then verse 5? The law of Moses is bad. And then Peter, the law of Moses is bad by some people's estimation. And yet, James turns around and says it's a good thing. <laughs> Obviously, that's right. These also are very convenient commands because they have enabled fellowship without confusing the issue. Later we see in Galatians that the disciples were not making Gentiles get circumcised. Not saying that it shouldn't be, but they weren't forcing it to because they didn't want to confuse the issue right. make it look like you have to become converted. Very good. The fourth command is allow fellowship without making it look like we're forcing you to convert to Judaism. Right. Very good. Excellent. So that's a start. They can participate and learn more. You had us put on the list of, of what we would do. What would be on the list? What we noticed was the list we made up, which is pretty much a list from most churches would say that. There wasn't anything on our list at all about food. Nope. And yet three out of the four on James's list yeah. about food. Yeah. And, and I still remember... Uh, God doesn't care about what we eat. Well, he cared about what Adam and Eve ate. <laughs> so, when, when Jeff was, uh, was over the house a couple of weeks ago, you know, he, he 
he said that in all seriousness. He said, I, I think God does care about food. Absolutely. And then he walked through the scriptures, all the way to Revelation, and he, he skipped this one. But here James was pretty concerned about right. food. Absolutely. Food. Absolutely. The key is... Actually, go to 1 Corinthians 7.19 real quick, and I'll, I'll explain this real quickly. We're going to move on. First Corinthians 7.19 says, Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Is circumcision not a commandment of God? When did I, when did I forget that one? No, it is. What we're saying here, what he's saying here is, if you follow this in the context, he's saying, if you're uncircumcised, if you're circumcised, remain so right. Yeah, it says, but each one remain the same, same calling which he was called. In other words, if you are not Jewish, don't become Jewish. Circumcision is shorthand for ritual conversion to Judaism. Probably 95 time, 95% of the time it's used in the, in, the, in the apostolic scripture, it is talking about conversion to Judaism. Joshua? And the verse before it, in verse 18, it says, If any man called being circumcised, let him not become uncircumcised. Yeah, how do you become uncircumcised? Yeah. Well, that's a little hard. That's a... Actually, there is a process of reverse circumcision. But anyway, regardless, not getting into that. The point is, <laughs> the point is here, that's exactly right. When we read circumcised, we immediately think, well, that means the command of Moses, eight-day circumcision, or the command of, command of Abraham, the circumcision of adults. That's not at all what it's talking about most of the time. It's talking about conversion to Judaism. Well, if you've been accepted in the community of God, and if you're beloved, and he has granted his Holy Spirit to you, and he considers you his child, do you need to become, you need to go through, through some other process to get into the family? No, you're already in the family. And if you go through another process to get in the family that's man-made, are you not annulling the very process? Are you not saying the process of grace through faith that he's, Yeshua's own work to make you a part of the family, aren't you not saying that it's worth nothing? That's exactly Paul's point in the book of Galatians. He's saying, listen, circumcision Let's rephrase it. Conversion to Judaism is not necessary to be considered a member of the family of God. Now, for Christian ears, that sounds like, what are you talking about? Who cares? But when we're going to take it in the context of what these people in that day heard, that's exactly what they cared about. How can I be saved unless I'm Jewish? (laughs) I can't. They say, no, no. You need to be children of Abraham. But going through conversion is not what does it. What makes you... A child of Abraham is to have the faith that Abraham had. That he believed God and trusted him for right and, he, and was accredited to him for righteousness. Acts 18. Let's skip on. We'll move on real quickly here. We've got stuff to cover. Acts 18, 18 through 20, and 20 through, uh, 1 through 10. Why'd Paul cut off his hair? What does he say? So Paul, verse 18, So Paul still remained a good while when he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his, he had his hair cut off at Kenecria, uh, for he had taken a vow. What kind of vow? And why have your hair cut off? Well, it's a Nazarite vow. Well, why do you cut your hair off? Because that's how you measure your Nazarite vow. If you read the, if you read the detail in that in Numbers chapter six, what you saw is you need to have your hair that's grown since your vow to offer as an offering. Well, you don't know what's grown 
unless you've cut it off to start with. So everything that you see when your Nazarite vow is over is all cut off because that is the measure of your offering. One part of your offering is your hair. This is a long vow because if you read that in Exodus, it's more than a year long. It takes him at least six months to get to Jerusalem. That's right. He intends to pay his vow. It appears he intends to pay his vow in this next cycle. Well, traditionally we know this to be true. This is not the scripture does not command this, but traditionally we know that it is tradition to begin a vow at Passover after the completion of unleavened bread and to complete the vow at Shavuot, the feast of of, uh, Pentecost. You can do it anytime. Scripture doesn't say when you should or shouldn't do it. All it's saying is that's usually when people do it. And today, people do exactly that. That's why you see observant Jewish men do not shave or do not cut their hair between the end of unleavened bread and, 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 and Shavuot, Pentecost. And the reason why is because it's commensurate with they can't keep a Nazarite vow. No one can today because there's no temple. We're going to see in a second. There's no temple. However, they're remembering the days when there was a temple. Okay? So you're taking a Nazarite vow. That's an optional thing. Uh, Paul apparently forgot that he's no longer under the law. I'm being, I'm being facetious. That this burden was no longer part of... This burden was never long on anybody. Nobody ever required a Nazarite vow, except for certain people within the, within the Hebrew Scriptures, within the Tanakh, that God dictated to their parents, this, this man will be a Nazarite. Other than that, there's no, there's no requirement for anybody to take a Nazarite Why would anybody want to take a Nazarite vow? You know what I read Rabbi Eliezer said? You don't do it out of love, but out of fear. To keep the commands out of love is not a burden at all. And to keep to make a vow, voluntary. Keeping the feasts is voluntary for those who cannot make it. God is not un- unreasonable. It says, all males shall visit me three times a year, wherever I place my name. But if they cannot make it, there's even a provision for if you miss Passover, you can get it next month. We remember uh, Joseph of Arimathea and our friend Nachimon, Nicodemus. We could celebrate that. Every, every year at Passover, we could remember them because they made themselves unclean for the Master. So they celebrated Passover 30 days later. Acts 27. Oh yes, this is the first day of the week. Anybody look at the Greek behind it? There's no week. And actually, I, I believe this is actually talking about Saturday evening. I have no problem with this being first day of the week. But you know, there's actually a way to read it so it's not even that. But that it's the first week. It's the first it's the first end of Sabbath after unleavened bread, because it says it's the first of weeks, it's plural. It's the first of weeks. And it was the first of weeks, which anybody that counts the Omer knows what that is. After unleavened bread's over, you start counting. How many weeks are there? There's seven weeks, and then we have Pentecost, Shavuot. So it's part of the counting of the Omer to say this is the first of weeks. This is the first day of the Omer. That's exactly what... I think it's very possible that that's what this... Yes, actually, it would, be a, it would be a Sunday as well. I think it's very possible that's what it is, but regardless, it doesn't say the first day of the week, and it doesn't mean Sunday morning. It certainly isn't Sunday morning. Paul does not preach for 18 hours. <laughs> Although I'm sure he could have. What we see here is now it was on the first day of the week. The word day is not found in the Scripture. It actually is the first of the weeks. Actually, it says the first of the Sabbaths is what it says. It doesn't say weeks. It says the first of Sabbaths. Plural. When the disciples came together to break bread, when does one come together to break bread? After the Sabbath. 
That's Havdalah time. Yeah, that's exactly right. Paul, ready to depart the next day. When's the next day? That day. And they got together, they broke, they ended the Sabbath together, and then they, the next day is just mere hours away, right? Spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. That's the same day. That would be reasonable if you start... You know, 6, 3, 7 o'clock. Sure, now we're talking about a three or four hour message. That's right, yeah. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a man named... Uh, Eutychus. that's guy's name. Who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down. The third floor was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him and embraced him. Now remember that. He came alive after. We'll go on. But he touched the dead guy, okay? Acts twenty one seventeen through 27. I'll read real quickly from parts of this here. Paul is gone. Now this is later. His vow, his hair's getting long, y'all. Okay? He started this vow. Paul, a man that starts a vow, will never end his vow unless he's permitted to. It's why I believe that if we could have a photograph of Paul at his execution, he would have very, very long hair. Because Paul was never able to finish his Nazarite vow. I believe Paul went to his grave a Nazarite. Yeah, I'll show you here in a second. He did. He did. Let's go over. Yeah, we'll, we'll look at it. Acts 21, 17 through 27. They're back in Jerusalem. Why? Paul wants to, it says, he wants to be there. Why? Because it's... The feast. It's time to be at the feast. Let's go. Yeah, apparently he didn't read that he's not all, no longer under the law. Paul, so confused. And when he had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received him gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to meet James. Luke's there. Luke's an eyewitness to this. To meet James, Yaakov. And all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail the things that God had, was, had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. They glorified the Lord. They're excited. This is great news. Okay? Paul's not a renegade. He's now out there like a loose cannon. He's under the authority. This is important. He's under the authority of James in the castle in Jerusalem. Is that fine? And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews that there are who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law. They're speaking to him and saying, Listen, great, glad to hear all the stuff God's doing about the Gentiles. You know what God's doing here? There's 20,000 plus believers here, right here, in Jerusalem. This time, the population of Jerusalem, not at festival time, was probably in the neighborhood of 40,000. means half the city of Jerusalem is believing, or greater. It's at least 20,000 by saying myriads of the plural. The plural. At least half the, half the population is believers. If, if you look at, uh, if you would have been telling him what had happened while he was gone, we know already, because we counted up during our classes, there was at least 10,000 before he left. Yeah. So, you know, now there's like, tons of people here. Now, I want you to remember, that's when it's not festival time. When are there going to be problems in Jerusalem for the believers when it's festival time? Why? Because the numbers grow by tenfold. That's it. Okay? Let's watch what happens. There are many myriads of Jews who have who have believed, and they're all zealous for the Torah. They're confused too. Oh. <laughs> you would think that James, of all people, 
Remember, he's in authority. Paul has placed himself under authority of James. So Paul can't be teaching something that James is not teaching. And what is James? Obviously, if James is doing his job, these people have really failed then, right? No. What is, they're zealous for the law. They're zealous for the Torah. Well, maybe only parts of it. I don't know. No, all of it. That's the whole idea of being zealous. They're like Pinchas. They have zeal. They're like Yeshua. Have zeal for the Lord's house and for the words of God. But they have been informed about you that you teach all Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Look, it's not only the Torah, but even traditions. Right? This goes to the eighth-day circumcision. Well, we never even talked about that. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. That's the Nazarite vow. The same thing Paul is currently under. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads that all may know that these things of which they have been informed concerning you are nothing and that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Keep the Torah. And teach it, I would say. Senator Yeshua's word, those who keep these commandments and teach others. It seems to me that verse 24 and a half ought to be Paul stepping to the plate and saying, Whoa, 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 stop. Look, okay, to the Gentiles, I'm a Gentile. To the Jews, I'm a Jew. But let's not confuse the issue. That's what has been told to me. Well, Paul just put on the communion clothes. Well, if that's the case, then Paul was a deceiver. He was deceitful. He was dishonest. And in fact, he is. In fact, Luke is a liar. Then, because Luke says Paul did keep the law, and James is not at all doubtful that Paul has. James knows. He knows deep down inside that whatever people are saying about Paul is wrong. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. Keep what such things? What are the things he says up there? That you teach the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. Well, he, didn't, he says, we didn't tell you to tell the Gentiles that. To tell them what? You need to circumcise your children. Isn't that a command? Absolutely. But doesn't one need to be very careful with this? That's exactly the point. So is my child growing up going to think he's Jewish? I mean, like, as of today, an example might be if you were dealing with someone who had recently been a non-believing Catholic and they made a profession of faith, realized the significance of grace, obviously you would want to treat issues like baptism Issues like sacraments such as Lord's Supper, etc., very carefully. Very good. Because you would not Excellent. want to make them think that those things are still what makes them righteous. Excellent. They had to leave before. Good point. Good point. Excellent point. So Excellent. In this case, he isn't saying we told them not to. Because if you read it again, he says, because they didn't tell us because they deserve no such thing, say only the list of four things. We didn't tell them those things. We That's didn't right. tell them, by the way, you better commit murder, because if you do not commit murder, you're sinning. You know, obviously he didn't say that. So the four rules are the only things they're supposed to do. He's simply saying, we're not laying any other burden than these four. Because you don't want to confuse the issue yet. Well, none of it's a burden, but you're right. Exactly. It was a rumor that Paul was not observant. He was teaching others the same. It's a false allegation, as we saw. What is it? We know it's in this Nazarite vow because it says they cut their hair. Okay? 
They're going to fulfill their vow. Okay, somebody tell me that looked it up. There it is. How do you finish your vow? Do you have to have a temple? You have to have a temple. You can't finish your vow without a temple. Why? You have to make sacrifices. That's right. You have to have a priesthood. Excellent. Whoa, that's excellent. Dead on. You have to have a priesthood. You have to have a temple. Can I make one note real quick? By the way, not just a temple, you could also give the tabernacle before. A tabernacle or a temple, yes. The tabernacle or the temple, you have to have a priesthood, you have to have sacrifices, or you can't end your vow. Period. That's what it says. You're missing uh, two turtle doves and yes. additional male ones. Yes, yes. Because they had to purify. Actually, I included that in plus sacrifice for purification for the contact with the dead. Yes, that's exactly right. That's a heck of a lot of animals. First of all, it says so you had to have one male lamb. And what kind of sacrifice is that again? That was the burnt up. Oh no, which one for for purification? Yeah, that would be for sin. Now, the male lamb was a trespass. The ewe lamb was a sin offering. Did anybody explain to Paul that this was a little bit confusing? No. After all, Yeshua is the sacrifice, right? You're talking about the regular one for the thing. Just the regular one. Even before that, the yeah. vacation one, he's got a sin offering for those, in those two terms. Exactly. Before he even gets there, before he even gets there to pay his vow, he must, he must deal with the fact that he's been in contact with the dead. Richard, he has to have already been, he's already been purified by the ashes of the red heifer before he even showed up there. Right. Okay. And a mikvah mm-hmm. outside the temple. Plus, if you read in the passage, it says it talks about seven days of purification. Yeah. That's exactly what you do when you've been in contact with dead person. Excellent. Perfect. See, what we see is, what we're seeing in this, in this description is, we're seeing that Paul is particularly careful to be exacting in his fulfillment of his Nazarite vow times five, because he's paying for somebody else to pay their expenses as well. I don't know if George picked up on all of that. He was in contact with a dead person. They're different offerings, exactly right. Different animal for each one. Different animal for each one. But a sin offering is Yeshua not paid our offering for sin? Absolutely. So what was it, was Paul trying to get forgiveness for sin? No. That's not what it is. We need as we get deeper into this book, what we're going to discover is sacrifices serve a single purpose and it is temporal they are not and they have never been never been issues of eternal forgiveness never never took away sin this is a false teaching theologies that teach that the Old Testament you had blood of animals take away your sin but in the New Testament Jesus blood takes away your sin are false teachings there is only one way that we are eternally atoned for, and it is only the eternal sacrifice of Yeshua. So what are the temple sacrifices all about? They're about temporal forgiveness for sin. You're going to go into the very presence of the Almighty in the temple. You need to be covered. It, uh, it appears here that he not only purified himself, but whether the other four guys needed it or not, he chose to pay for them. It looks like it looks like they did too as well. So he's got to buy fifteen lambs, ten dozen. <laughs> <laughs> All just to keep a good picture in yeah. front of the Jews. Yeah. Just to fake everybody out. That's right. 
No, Paul is not a deceiver. And in fact, what we discover is Paul is not only not a deceiver, he is, he is zealous as well. This is something he wants to do. Verse 28. Let's look at Paul's... Uh, Paul, Paul, by the way, is, he's, he's grabbed. These are false accusations. He's grabbed. The reason why I say he's still under Nazarite bound, in my opinion, is it says before he was able to cross over. To cross over... Uh, uh, where is it? In verse... Uh, in 27. In 26, it was until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Yeah. So the seven days have not elapsed because it says crying um, when the seven days are exactly. It says almost. That's right. So he's not. He has not yet become removed from his vow. He's still being purified. And so it means is it means that he's still under the vow, and unless he left Rome from prison and got back to Jerusalem he would still be under the vow interesting so wait it says in seven days almost over so does that mean he's not purified yet no seven days ago. yeah you have to be purified for seven days before you can go in and end your Nazarite vow so does that mean he's unclean or? No, he can't go into the temple. He can't go into the temple. He can't go into the temple. He can't go into the temple in order to end his vow. I think this seven days of purification is slightly different than that, though, because I don't think it's so much purification for death. It's much as it's sort of a a a, a return of redemption, just sort of a, a re. Actually, that's the seven day. Actually, that's the seven. Actually, he's right. That's the seven days. He just can't do. That's right. No, that's true. It's the vow. It's the seven days. Yeah. In all likelihood, he's already in the temple when all this is done. Well, he's completed the other stones. Yeah, he's in the temple. He's in the temple. He's grabbed in the temple. Okay, what, and what happens, he says here, men, uh, they, they, they grab him and they're saying, men crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, this place, and furthermore, he brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. With the exception that he brought Greeks in, guess what? Same accusation offered against Yeshua. Same accusation offered against Stephen. And are those accusations correct? No, Stephen said these are. This is not true. It says they're false allegations. They can't even prove it. And exactly, Paul adds that at the end here. In the next, he goes. Uh, Paul gives his credentials, by the way, and then uh, in verse twenty-one. Here's here's or verse uh, chapter twenty two verse twenty one. Paul's giving him his credentials. He's talking about who he is. Nah, 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 nah. Look, I'm not the bad guy that you say I am. And then verse twenty one, and he said, uh, and he starts talking about uh, uh, what Yeshua said to him. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Enough of this nonsense. Right, and there on the small wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the inner from the inner court, even before you get into the temple proper itself, is this sign that says, "Past this point, at pain of death, if you're a Gentile." And Paul obviously is now guilty because he is bringing Gentiles in. In their mind, he didn't, did he? There's no record of Gentiles ever being brought into the temple by the people of the way. False accusation. Verses 2 through 3. What's the issue for the chief priests who are Sadducees? This is, uh, this is Ananias. This, is, uh, this guy was only high priest for a short period of time. He was removed. He was so egregious. Even, uh, even the Roman government couldn't stand him and took him out. Uh, chapter 23, verse 2 through 3 says, um, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who were by him to strike him, Paul. And Paul said to them, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to law, and you do not command me to be, and you command me to be struck 
contrary to the law. Do you not do... And those who stood by said, that's human. That was the issue. I got the wrong, I got the wrong verse there. Yeah, that's not it. That's the right wrong verse. Anyway, the issue is... For the, verse 6. That's it. The, the, yes, but Paul perceived that when they were one part Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead. I am being judged. He recognizes what the real, real thing, and of course then they, they go, oh, never mind. Part of the problem is he appealed to Caesar so he's not free to go. Uh, chapter 24, 10 through, uh, 10 through 11, he later has an offer again to make his case. Paul then, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered saying, As much as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because that you may ascertain, uh, you may we may ascertain that it was no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Which are the things? I'm speaking against this people, this place, and against the law. You should, we should take note that Paul specifically went to Jerusalem, we know, for a fact, to offer at least... Uh, he would have known at least five animals and that's 24-17 and he called it worship that's right excellent excellent that's exactly right look at verse uh, 24-17 he says he tells him why he went to Jerusalem he had gifts and offerings well in our mind it's like okay put your tithes and offerings in the offering plate that's not what the offerings are here the offerings are sacrifices in the Greek it's just plain old sacrifices The last we see Paul, he maintains his consistency with normative Judaism. Chapter 28, uh, verses 17 through 20. He would argue that to believe in Yeshua is the ultimate act, the ultimate belief of an observant Jew. Chapter, 17, or chapter 28, verse 17. And it came to pass after three days, Paul called the leaders of the Jews together in Rome. Hillel, the, Hillel II sent letters, even before he was uh, president of the synagogue, or of the uh, Sanhedrin, sent letters telling people, warning people about believers. And so there was no doubt that this is what's going on already. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our father, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who when they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which of which to accuse my nation. So let's talk about the split a little bit, real quickly. Um, just going to give you a little bit of history here. This is not in your homework. John 3, and in John 19.39, we learned about this man, Nicodemus, Noctimon. He's actually a very famous, wealthy man from the land of Israel. His full name is Noctimon Ben-Gurion. This is probably a name that was he was changed uh, it was changed to um, on account of a miracle. Anyway, this, this uh, anyway we we learn of him because he is one who made himself unclean before the Passover meal by taking the body of Yeshua along with Yosef, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and wrapping it 
uh, and putting in, sp- in spices and taking it to um, the tomb. So he did a, an incredible act of love. He is a secret believer, but he is a believer. And he's on the Sanhedrin, he's a Pharisee. Um, he is one of the three men that the Talmud records. He's one of the three men that financed the Jewish revolt, the first Jewish war between 66 and, and 71. And uh, along with uh, uh, Ben Kalba Sabua and Ben Zitzit Hakeset and Nakimon. Yeah. Well, he says his Zitzit were so long that he's known as Ben Zitzit. Ben Kalba is, is most likely the father in law of Rabbi Akiva. We'll look at him in a second. He was a secret follower of the master, Nakimon, nicknames. Luke 20, 21-20, uh, Yeshua warns his, his followers. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, armies flee. So in fact, that's exactly what happened. Um, and, and most likely, although there's some debate, most likely they fled to the city of Pella, which is in modern northern Jordan near the Sea of Galilee, where they escaped from Judea in mass. Uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was a disciple of Halil, and uh, he was uh, he was a contemporary of the master. He uh, he was a um, he was a very liberal Pharisee, as Pharisees go. Uh, um, his teachings are very complementary of Yeshua's. Um, Rabbi uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai actually had an idea that this thing around Jerusalem was going to go badly. He knew somehow. Uh, maybe, maybe his contact with believers, he knew. But he actually decides to flee Jerusalem as well. So he tells his disciples, his Talmudim, uh, you know, I'm not feeling well, and I, I may die. Uh, and so they put him in a coffin, and they put some rotten meat in there well, as well. And uh, they seal the coffin, and they take him to the gates. By the way, I didn't tell you that the, uh, the stores in Jerusalem had been supplied by these three men, Nachtimon, uh, uh uh, ben Kalba Sabua and uh, Ben Zitzi Hakeset, they had supplied Jerusalem with wood, uh, food, and water to survive the siege. And the zealots, or the Zakari, actually burned it all. They didn't want it. They didn't want. They wanted to encourage people to break out and fight the Romans. Um, anyway, so they're guarding the gates, and they won't let anybody out because they're afraid they'll be traitors. So, Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakai. Rabban is probably more correct because rabbis are not officially rabbis here. Um, are, he's placed in the coffin with some rotten meat. He's still alive. And they take him to the gates and they said, we have the body of uh, uh, Rabbi uh, Zakai here and we want to leave. Um, we want to go bury him, you know, in the valley. And, and they said, well, that's fine, but, you know, we're going we're gonna to run our swords through this, you know, just to make sure he's dead. And they go, what are you talking about? You're going to desecrate the body of, you know, this great rabbi? How dare you? And so they say, okay, whatever. So they let him through. And so uh, on the other side, they open the coffin. Uh, Yochanan comes out of the coffin. Uh, did I tell you what his name means in English? John, son of Zacchaeus. And he's a short man. <laughs> um, he grew up in Galilee, though, so maybe it's not the same one. Uh, anyway, Yochanan uh, comes out of the comes out of the coffin and s- speaking to Vespasian says, "You know, I had this vision that you will not only win this battle, but you will be a great king. You're going to be the emperor." Well, Vespasian's not the emperor right now, but within you know mere weeks, 
he is the emperor. He's called back to Rome. He's made emperor. He puts his son Titus in charge of the siege. Titus finishes the job in 70. Uh, Tishbab takes the temple and destroys Jerusalem. And, and, uh, but when Yochanan comes out of his coffin and speaks to Vespasian and makes this prophecy, as it were, he asks a favor. Not only can I escape with my life, give me the house of Hillel in Yavne, which is a city on the coast, and allow me to go there un- unscathed. And he does. And the house of Hillel is basically his, his, his portion of the Pharisees, the house of Hillel. So he takes the house of Hillel, and he goes to Yavne, and he reconstitutes the Sanhedrin. And it is from this moment that what we would call Judaism modern Judaism can find its birth in Yochanan ben Zakkai. He is the founder of, of modern what we would call rabbinic Judaism. It's also where they got the Jerusalem Talmud. Exactly. The Jerusalem Talmud comes out of first of all, first of all well kind of, not, not quite yet but uh, that's at a later date but yes, this is the council that begins the, this, uh, the, the Sanhedrin begins to reconstitute the Sanhedrin they reconstitute academies they start academies Schools. Uh, they move from Yavne eventually up to Zipporah and then over to Tiberias, and then we get the uh, beginning of the Mishnah and the Jerusalem Talmud, and then the Babylonian Talmud follows from it. Uh, he has five primary disciples, and the reason why I'm bringing these up is these are some important people that may come up again in discussions. The first is Eliezer ben Herakonis. Eliezer ben Herakonis is an interesting person because he's quoted more than any other person within uh, the Talmud. Of a Tanaim, a man from this, this time. Yehoshua ben Hananiah, uh, Yossi HaKohen, Shimon ben Nataniel, and Eliezer ben Arak. Ben Arak is a, is a uh, apostate. He, he becomes an atheist. Um, Eliezer ben Herakonis is, uh, is interesting because he is um, he's married to Gamaliel, the second sister. Yochanan ben Zakkai, after three years, after he sets up the, the Sanhedrin um, in Yavne, understand that the believers, they've all essentially moved on to Pela. They're separated. Okay? They, they're going to filter back into the land of Israel, out of the Decapolis. They're going to filter back into the land of Israel. But that's where they escape to. So right now, Judaism has this, has this uh, reconstituted Sanhedrin. And they know that the believers have basically... Uh, fled the scene, chickened out, as it were. And so they're very... Uh, and also, in addition to that, Josephus records that... You're going to read about this in your homework. Josephus records that the reason why Titus destroys Jerusalem is because he's in penalty for killing James, Yaakov. So there's a war in Judaism. And the war begins with the destruction of Jerusalem. And, and because of that, Gamaliel II, who is vitriolic against believers and vitriolic against um, Gentiles, he's just nasty to Gentiles, um, there is, in fact, an attempt then to drive a deep wedge between the believers and the rest of Judaism and the synagogues. Um, ben Herakonis is married to Gamaliel's sister. But Ben Herakonis has many friends and a lot of teaching very similar to believers becomes very obvious after, well, you know, you sure talk like those people. Maybe you are one of them people. You believe in Yeshua? He's brought up as a, in a trial. In his trial, he basically, he says that God will judge him. The judge misunderstands and says and believes that, in fact, that he's saying that the judge is, that, that, that the charges are wrong. 
and so he is excommunicated that he is he is essentially um, uh, what do you call it he's not put to death he gets to live out the rest of his life in excommunication his primary disciple is Akiva who's also vitriolic against believers uh, he's married to Gamaliel II this is how vitriolic Gamaliel II is against believers his own brother-in-law he has banned Eliezer ben uh, Hiracanus Gamaliel II also is a writer of the Third Trinity. Uh, here, actually, this, it's, that's, that's, uh, Gamaliel took over the Sanhedrin in about 73. Uh, remember Yochanan Bezakai? He's a nice old fella. He's like 80 years old. He lives another 40 years, 120 years old. But he's not the president of the Sanhedrin. Uh, nobody knows exactly the means by which Gamaliel takes over, but Gamaliel takes over. Gamaliel, by the way, is, this, is the grandson of Gamaliel that we read about in Acts. The grandson. He takes over the Sanhedrin. He's very anti-Gentile. He actually, at his direction, uh, Samuel Hakatan, uh, Samuel the Little, the little guy, he takes over. Yeah. I don't know if he's short too, maybe, I don't know. Uh, he, ta- he, is, he is directed to write the 12th benediction of the Amidah, which you have in the back of your, um, in the back of your uh, appendix. The 12th benediction is no, none, nothing less than a curse against believers. It's been explained away many different ways. It's not. It is a curse against believers. So, you go up to pray in the synagogue. There's no temple anymore. So you go to the synagogue to pray for three times a day. Part of the prayer service is going to include a curse against you. After the destruction of Jerusalem, Josephus says it's for the killing of James. Believers are not in good regard with the rest of Judaism. They're never again included in Judaism at large. Now, it takes place... Understand, the rabbinic system does not automatically make decrees that apply places. Each, each community has their own rabbi, or in that case, rabban, a, 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 a big one. Um, each community has their own that is able to make certain halakhic decisions, uh, decisions about how we're going to do things. And so some communities did accept them as others didn't. It was a more gradual thing. It wasn't, it wasn't a clear split. The split started here. Believers. Ma minim. That's what it means. Animaim, I believe. Right? It's a de- declaration of belief. I believe. So a believer is Ma Amin. A heretic is Minim. Heretic is also an acronym for Ma Minim Yeshua Notsri. Or a believer in Yeshua of Nazareth. Our, our Jewish historians would not agree with this, by the way. They, they would say, no, no, that's not what it means. It just means someone who's... Well, I understand. They, they were persecuted by Christians for... The Talmud had, had stuff speaking against believers, so they actually had to come up with a... Re- no, no, it just means anybody that's apostate. You know, it's, it's, It means apostate it does, or heretic. It doesn't mean believers. It's definitely directed to believers. This is the last straw was the inclusion of Gentiles. There was something the rest of Judaism could not abide. And the split which began in 62, that was the, which we're going to see when you read your homework next week, talks about James. That's the split. James is killed and basically we see a, 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 a war begin in Judaism. Uh, it was not completed until the 3rd century. We can find, uh, find Jerome's writings even in the 5th century still talking about believers who are Jewish who are not a part of the, the church. Uh, the Catholic Church essentially said they were heretics, but we can know why. <laughs>
Alright, the split between believers and the rest of Judaism was not primarily over Yeshua. It began with Yeshua and the resurrection, where Pharisees finally separated from believers over the inclusion of Gentiles. From the moment that the, that the split was clear and defined, somewhere in probably the 3rd or 4th century, from that moment, Jesus is the issue. Yeshua is the issue. Okay? That's why we say Yeshua. Supersessionism and dispensationalism were later theological inventions to distance Christianity from Judaism and all things that appeared Jewish. It's the basis for theolo- theolo- the, this is the basis for a theological bias against the temple, the sacrifices, and the Torah, which is why we've been going through this process, because we're going to understand the book of Hebrews. We've got to try to erase the bias before we open it up. These theologies post-dated the epistle of the Hebrews by many years. Hence, the message, as we've already seen, you know, everything we've already looked at, the message of Hebrews is one of an encouragement to those what was central to the faith, in our faith, and that is Yeshua. Yeshua is central to the faith. Not to discourage them from participating in the temple system, or to discourage them from the, from the reading and uh, study of the scriptures, but rather to remind them what was most important. When we get to chapter 6 of Hebrews, it's going to be a perfect explanation for the issues over eternal security or not, because it's not even talking about it. It's, it's talking about how do you remain within the system when you've been banned from the system. Final comments? Questions? Let's close. Our Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, opportunities to know these things. Father, we ask that you'd help us to uh, learn even more. And as we uh, learn, Father, we'd be careful to learn not just facts, but also learn of you. We ask that you might uh, reveal yourself in your word to us personally. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natanlanu Torah emet Vechai olanu Tatepotnenu Baruch atah Adonai Noten haTorah Amen Blessed art thou Adonai our God King of the universe Who gave us the Torah of truth And planted eternal life in our midst Blessed art thou Adonai Giver of the Torah Amen